Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life, four things they love and one thing they loathe, that they would like to put into a time capsule. The things they love to preserve them, and the one thing they loathe to be rid of it, so that they never have to think about it again. My guest in this episode is the actor, comedian, novelist and playwright, Nigel Plainer, who even after 40 years is still remembered as Neil from the Young Ones. He was a founding member of the London Comedy Store and an original performer of the comic strip, the pioneers of the alternative comedy movement, appearing as part of a double act, The Outer Limits, with his friend Peter Richardson. They went on to perform many times in the TV series The Comic Strip Presents. Nigel's other TV credits include Filthy Rich and Cat Flap, French and Saunders, Jonathan Creek, Blackadder, Death in Paradise, Boomers and Episodes as well as leading roles in Shine on Harvey Moon, The Grimleys, Michael Palin's Number 27, and Dennis Potter's drama Black Eyes. He's also been in a number of films, such as Bright Young Things, Terry Pratchett's Hogfather, The Land Girls, Carry On Columbus, and Brazil. In the theatre, Nigel has had an amazing career in musicals. He understudied David Essex in the original Evita. He was in the original West End cast of Chicago. He's gone on to perform in We Will Rock You, The Rocky Horror Show, Wicked, Hairspray, and most recently, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Nigel created the spoof actor character, Nicholas Craig. 
He made two albums as the spoof rock band Bad News, had a number two hit with the old traffic song Hole in My Shoe, and a number one hit alongside Cliff Richard with Living Dole for comic relief. What on earth are we going to talk about? (sighs) Well, something, I should imagine. Anyway, here's our chat. Let's talk about the five things that you need to put into this time capsule. So the first thing is the River Thames. <laughs> I don't know how we fit that into the capsule, and it is a moving thing at all time, which is its main quality, is that it moves. I've uh, lived by the Thames for many years. I've lived on the Thames for five years on a big lighter barge in Chelsea, which was wonderful, a 19... 19- 47 police customs barge with a with a wooden construction on the top it looked like a sort of noah's ark yeah and i've lived in a lovely flat looking down over the river for years in the hammersmith area so I'm quite happy to just sit there watching things go by yeah and i far prefer it to going to the seaside it moves mm. so anything that might it sort of tells you anything that might be a problem today it will have moved on it's uh the essence of what time is how to be patient the river remains the same but the water's flowing through it's never the same water yeah did you ever move about on the river then when you were moored there or was it a permanent mooring no it was a permanent mooring it didn't have an engine my neighbors had to have go and have their bottoms scraped and so they were towed out into the middle and taken down to Isleworth, the dry dock at Isleworth. And um, that looked quite alarming to have your whole house, all your books and your kitchen and everything, suddenly out (laughs) bobbing about in the middle of the river. Because it was a substantial home. I mean, it was was bigger than, until recently, bigger than any flat I'd ever had, actually. I mean, it was 80 (laughs) foot long by 20 foot wide. Wow. So that's that's a big... That's big, yeah. That's a big... It's not really a boat. It was a skip with a house on it sitting Mm. in the water. But it moved around, so you felt the currents. It moved up and down about a good 20 feet up and down each day. I can see the attraction then, the attraction of of that idea that you you watch everything constantly change. Yeah, yeah. It's a good reminder, isn't it, of the fact that that, what is here now won't be here tomorrow. Yes, but there's also the fact that it remains the same. Mm. Because it's the same river, so you can... I get excited by the historical aspects of the bridges in London. You know, if I'm walking into work, because I live just south of the river, I can walk over the bridge, and I, I, I love that, looking at St Paul's and the Robert Hooke churches and all of the... Up to Drury Lane, when I was working at Drury Lane, the little alleys and the, 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 the streets, you think, how similar is this to the way it would have looked in, you know, 1703. Mm. I know when my parents were young, they lived south of the river, but very close to the Thames. So they lived in Bermondsey and Rotherhive, that area. Mm. And their houses were right on the Thames. And for them, the Thames was sort of, was their seaside. Yeah. They would play on what they called the beach, which I suppose was the mud when the tide went out. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what they did in their summer holidays. There is a little beach now on the south bank that's that's been built. I mean, it's a sort of fake beach, but it's sandy. 
right by the festival hall. So you can climb down the stairs there and play on a sand beach. Uh, yes, I've seen it. People make sand sculptures and things. Do they replace the sand every day? I have no idea. They can't. That would be too much trouble. But I'm amazed it doesn't get washed away because it's a powerful river, isn't it, the Thames, when it gets flowing? Yes, I once saw the, uh, what we thought was a dog suddenly come out of the river at Putney, or a seal or a dog, breathing out like that, and then realised, oh, no, it's a man. And it popped oh underneath, under, under the water, and didn't come up again. So I rushed down to the side. I was running, I'm now calling ambulance, river police, whatever, seeing mm. if I could. And I was on the shore running up and down there, and eventually a, a guy came and said, lucky you didn't go out. He's probably somebody who drowned days ago further up the river, who's now yeah. passing down the river. We get them all the time. And if you'd gone in at this particular corner of the river, you'd have probably lasted under a minute. Good Lord. So I was, yeah, no, very sobered, very sobering. Mm. I've written loads about it. I've written a, a whole uh, a, a movie script about God knows how many drafts called Riverman, which is a very sort of spooky idea for a film, very, very moody piece, putting all the river in, all my river tales, my tales mm. of the river. I nearly bought a river barge. But my wife was worried about safety for children. Did you have your children with you? Ah, yes, there is that. Um, how old were your children? Well, I suppose they would have been about, when we were looking at it, about 10 and 8. Yeah. I mean, I was recently divorced. In fact, they used to call the place I lived Divorce Wharf because there were so many uh, divorced people in their boats up and down this wharf. <laughs> and I did have my son, who was about five at the time, but he would come, it would be just me and him, and I didn't worry about safety because we made some very strict rules, and it was just me and him. Mm. For the times that I did have him, he remembers it as being, you know, the, his favourite time of his life, being on the boat with his dad. It's lovely. And for you, just sauntering into London to do a, a play or a musical. You know, it was nice getting back and he, you could hear the, as you came through the big gate that led to the pontoons, mm -hmm. there was a big wooden gate that clacked behind you. And it's on the embankment, so there was a lot of traffic. Noisy traffic, noisy traffic. That gate went clack and suddenly you've got the non-noise of the river coming up at you. Yeah. Total quiet, occasional of some bird, <laughs> and it, you're in a different world. It was lovely. Yes. For me, the last time I went on a boat on the River Thames, uh, I was doing a play in London, but I didn't go on in this play until the last 10 minutes of the play. So they gave me permission to turn up at the interval, which sounds like the perfect job. It was the perfect job. Uh, well, one day I got an invitation to um, go to a book launch for Terry Pratchett's latest book. I really like Terry Pratchett, so uh, I went to this thing, and it was on a barge on the on the River Thames, and everybody was standing around having drinks, and I was having orange juice because I was going to go into a play, and it was about um, half past eight, so I thought, well, I've got half an hour, and then I'll go up for the interval, and uh, suddenly the boat started moving. <laughs> I said to the man, where are we going? He said, down to the barrier. I said, no, I can't. I've got a play to do. And they actually, to, oh, thank goodness. Threw you overboard. <laughs> they should have done. They brought it back alongside and I jumped off. That's the trouble on. with giving a party on a boat, is if you're not enjoying the party, you can't get off, can you? No. 
Now, I think that may have been the reason to make sure everybody stayed. I, I love Terry Pratchett too. I, I mm. read 18 or so, 17 of his books in audiobook. Um, um, the, the unabridged versions. Wow. So they're quite long. You know, it's quite a long old read if you're doing an unabridged. But I got to mm. uh, acquaint myself with all of those characters. A lot of characters to do. I've still got somewhere, I've got my cast list, whereas each character <laughs> appears, you've got to remember, because like seven books ago, this character may have appeared. What voice mm. did you use? So I've got, you know, whatever the character name is, Hearthwit or something, <laughs> John Le Mazurier with, you know, upper lip problem. <laughs> not doing impersonations, I'm not very good at them, but just something in your head to have in your, in your, in your imagination, if I think a bit, Jean Le Mazurier, I, I might yeah. just, you know, I might just, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, just to try and differentiate all the characters. It was like mm. 50, 60, 70 characters. 20 wizards. Yes. What am I going to do for another wizard voice? Yeah. <laughs> I, I recorded uh, audiobooks of the uh, the Long Earth series for Terry Pratchett. Right. Yeah, and that's the same. That's five books. So not as many as you, but five five books, and they're they're long. And they go all over the place. So they had the character I remember having the most difficulty with was um, they go to an earth um, that has is populated by dogs, but the dogs all speak. So I had to do several dogs talking to each other. <laughs> that's about as about as good as I could get. Yeah, that's it. I just put a little bark at the beginning of everything, you know. So just make it go. <laughs> I made some sort of overall decisions, like the trolls are all Scottish, you know, and the the dwarves are all German, or just something so that you can <laughs> to let you off the hook a bit, you know. Well, all right, I'll put a copy of The Colour of Magic or something on on the deck chair with you sitting by the River Thames in your time capsule. That sounds good yeah. to me. So you can sit there and watch the Thames go by. Okay. That's the first thing. So what's what's your second thing? The second thing is my shelf of shame, which is all the books that I intend to read but haven't yet read. <laughs> is that what you call it? The shelf of the shame. shelf of shame. That's very good. But also on it might be some repeats. You know, I have re actually read War and Peace. That is no longer on my shelf of shame. But it's so good I put it back there. Because I, I'd be quite happy to read that again. Really? Yes, it's a phenomenal it's book. It's like a lot of those books that you think, I really should read this book. Yeah. And actually, if you get round to doing it, the reason they're so famous is because they are really good books. Yes, but sometimes there's a lot of languagey problems, chewy language, difficulty of pomposity of delivery, isn't there, that make a, mm. a classic book quite hard. Whereas yeah. with Tolstoy... That's not the case. You're straight in. There's no problem with understanding what he's saying. He's talking directly inside you. He's a phenomenal writer, I think. And my theory is he probably didn't even know he was doing it. Because if you look at his life and his, when, when he actually spoke about his thoughts and what he actually did, he doesn't seem to have any understanding of humanity at all. But when you read the books, he seems to be wiser than, you know, to understand human feelings so well that uh, my, my pet theory is that he, he actually didn't know he was doing it. 
I mean, he, he obviously knew how he worked hard to construct the books and to, you know, mm. he really worked, you know, I think War and Peace took him about five years. So he researched it. He, you know, he, he did the work. But in terms of the, the extraordinary insights he has into human feeling, you know, into what's mm. going on inside somebody's psychology, it seems if you look at his life, if he, under, if he understood it that much... Why did he do all those stupid things? <laughs> That's my theory. That's my, luckily, I'm not an academic, so I don't have to justify it in any way. <laughs> Although we're all quite wise, aren't we, when we can sit down and consider something and think about it. If you just are acting on instinct, as it were, we're all idiots. Yeah, yeah, that's, yes, certainly my case. <laughs> so what other books have you got there that you need to read in your shelf of shame? Well, at the moment, I'm on a jag of uh, reading Japanese fiction. Murakami and that sort of thing. Uh, no, I haven't read any Murakami. He would be up there. Yeah. The recent one just looks about 800 pages long, and it kind of puts me off. The person who just said he's read would like to read War and Peace twice, which is about 1,400 <laughs> pages long. But, uh, no, that my favourite a uh, Japanese author is Tanizaki, who's a, at the changeover period where the Meiji period was over when they wanted to westernise like mad. And some of the authors who became very westernised went back to their former villages or how, and, and started to try and relive or resuscitate and not completely reject the earlier Japanese culture. And there's Soseki and my favourite, Tanizaki. And they're writing amazing books which have no endings, which are sort of, they're full of this uh, typical Japanese question mark in the, in, the, in the story. So the events will happen and you think, ah, is this couple going to divorce or not? Ah, it's all about them splitting up and his father doesn't want them to and blah, blah, you know. And so you get all into the sort of soap opera-ness of it. And so they go and see the father and then they come back again <laughs> and then it finishes. <laughs> and you're left going, they haven't made up their minds. They don't know. That's what this book's about. But all the implications are there for you to decide. You do, Even the modern ones, there's one called Kitchen, by somebody called Banana Yashimoto. That's a good name, isn't it? That's a great name. She's actually called Banana Yashimoto. <laughs> what should we call our children? Um, apple? Banana. Apple. Banana, that's the one, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I find them absolutely compelling and fascinating. So I'd have a, I've had a load of that stuff. I'd have yeah. that on my show for shame. Well, uh, you see, unfortunately, you're talking to a man who basically only reads factual books. Ah. I read historical books or I read books give me information really i agree i read factual books i will read history books mostly yes factual books mm. that's why i would recommend you start reading japanese fiction okay because um it doesn't do that annoying thing that modern literature fiction does i, I would get myself a little irritated <laughs> like watching the same drama series on telly all the time they go in phases, don't they? This year it was all younger men with older women. So I read somewhere that, that uh, the death of the, uh, the great American novel uh, happened when Viagra was invented because most American novels were written by old men who were decrying the loss of, of their virility. 
I, I, I sort of agree. Uh, Philip Roth and things, I, I can't ever enjoy it because it always seems like he's just writing, saying, and then I shagged this other woman, and then I shagged another one. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, you know, I just, you can't, yeah. I'm unstoppable. Yeah. Although, having said that, Saul Bellow did write one of my favourite books of all time, the one he won the Nobel Prize on, and it's called Seize the Day. And it's mm. lovely and short, and it's tragic and excruciatingly painfully embarrassing. You know, it's, it's mm. about a young guy who lives in a hotel that his father owns, and he's humiliated every day by the success of his father. It's just it's excruciating. I mean, the way I'm talking, it sounds like I, I'm a huge fiction reader, but I'm really not. Most of the time I read history books. That's why you've got a shelf of shame. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, you don't need the Terry Pratchett to sit by the river. You've got all these books to read. Yeah, I've got, I've got a, a lot of reading to do. It's going to be a lovely day. It is, because of my my third thing. If it's a fishing net. No, it's not fishing. OK. OK, we're going to take a short break for a moment to bring you some adverts. We'll be back in the shake of a lamb's tail. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Okay, let's get straight back to Nigel Planer and find out what else he'd like to put into his time capsule. Yeah, can someone get that sheep out of here, please? And can you clear that up? My third thing is uh, trees, preferably a maple tree. See, I've gone all Japanese at the moment, haven't I? Mm -hmm. I like big shaggy trees. Uh, That's what I really miss living in central London. Not enough trees. Yeah, the London plain... Very, very nice. London Plain, I was reading, it came to London in the 18th century. 
And the first one is in Barnes. It's still there? Still alive? Really? If it's not, it was certainly was the first one which then propagated itself into the, into the London plain. I always thought they were introduced to help clear up the air. Certainly loads of them down in Twickenham in uh, Marble Hill House and places like that. They would have, in the 18th century, thought, oh, let's have loads of plane trees. Mm. And, of course, the ginkgo trees, a much later addition to London. You know the one that looks like a clover? The leaves look like a clover leaf. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, in fact, technically speaking, they're not leaves. They're grass because it's a single stem. It's not a split stem. If this was ever properly broadcast in any way, you'd probably get lots of complaints saying that's that... That's not a ginkgo tree? Yes, 90% <laughs> of what I say is probably completely... It's making it all up! Yes. <laughs> they knew that ginkgo trees had existed, but there weren't any in the West. And they thought it had died out, because it's a very ancient tree, until they found one in China, suddenly, quite recently, in the 20th century, I think. Mm. and um, uh, took cuttings from that, and that's why we now have, you know, all over Battersea and everywhere, really, ginkgo trees. But you prefer an elm tree, a great big elm tree, or you're designing your uh, Capability Brown garden. Yes, I would definitely want some big English trees in there with Mm. with birds in them because I'm a big birder, and it would be nice with a big tree that would have some nut hatches and tree creepers crawling up and down it. Because nowadays in London, all we have is green parakeets. They're everywhere. <laughs> yes, it's true. Extraordinary. Nowhere else. They've not, they've not made it out, have they? I don't know. Have they not? No, no. I first noticed them when I was in Twickenham. Mm. But even here up in central London, our wildlife is parakeets and foxes. Foxes just wandering across a main road, go straight up to you. They just, they own the place. Well, I've got a pet theory about foxes, which, um, oh, yeah. uh, once again, so almost certainly completely wrong. Yeah. Uh, but it's, I think we ought to make the whole of this interview us both spouting facts that are not true. Obviously, we're proving that we do read a lot of fact books and then get the facts jumbled. Yeah, the only reason to listen to this is to um, check fuck it. What's that called? <laughs> check fuck it. <laughs> check fuck it, yeah. Yeah, check fuck it or fact chuck it. Fuck yeah. it. I, I don't bloody know. Whatever those words are. Yeah. So my theory about foxes is that the town fox, as I like to call it, is almost a different breed, almost a different sort of fox. Like you sh- foxes should be called country foxes and town foxes. Because if you put a town fox next to a country fox, yeah, uh, they're, they're completely different shape. They're, their coats are different. In, in the country, a fox is short, squat. It's got much thicker coat. Which one has that? The country fox. You see them in in the countryside. Ah, you see, you'll have to describe that to me. Is that the place where they've got tractors and things like that? And trees, Nigel. You should, you should come out sometime. <laughs> they've got trees. But you'll see a fox go across a field in, in the countryside, and it's, it's a low squat thing. Whereas the foxes that live in the town here are tall and, and got very long legs. Country ones go down holes, and the town ones look in bins. Yeah. Over a very few generations, it's been an advantage for a fox that lives in a town for its legs to be longer. It's my theory that actually, in the last 30 years, the foxes have split into two different categories, that actually you have a country fox and a town fox, and country foxes stay in the country and town foxes stay in the town. 
There we are. But uh, somebody will have to uh, check fuck it. <laughs> well, I think um, I think we've strayed rather a long way from trees. But then, you know, no, not necessarily the countryside. But trees, it's what you really miss. Yeah. And I have to make the effort to mm. go somewhere where I'm going to have e- even just a day with some trees, you know, uh, trees all around. That's the one thing I really do miss uh, living in central London. I've been working with... Um, Adrian Edmondson, the last couple of years, we've been writing plays, and mm. I could leave his house and I walk home through Hyde Park, Green Park, and St James's Park. Perfect. But it's three parks in a row, which is, mm-hmm. yeah, it's very nice, but um, it's not quite the same. Right, fantastic. So at the moment we've got you sitting reading your Shelf of Shame next to the River Thames with some beautiful oaks and elms and really quite huge English trees. You're building yourself another world, aren't you? I really am, actually, yes. Mm. And which leaves the fourth thing. Uh, I am building a world, I didn't realise, because I could be (laughs) quite happy in this world with this uh, fourth thing, which is mainly it's olive oil. And the the other parts of it are garlic with Mm. the olive oil. And the third part of it is marmalade. Are you saying you put marmalade and olive oil on your toast? On the same bit of toast, yes. Really? I would definitely recommend it. I'm going to try it. You know, marmalade's never quite bitter enough, is it? You know, especially more the more commercial brands, it's too sweet. It doesn't have that real twang that good marmalade should have. Yeah. Well, try it with olive oil instead of butter on the toast. And then you get the proper sweet and bitter feeling at the same time. It's marvellous. Mm. You know the way people in restaurants nowadays, they serve you some bread and then they serve you a little bowl of olive oil and everybody yes. sits there dipping their bread in the <laughs> olive oil. And, you know, that kind of idea caught on with me. I just thought, well, why aren't we doing that anyway? What 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 is all this spreads, butters, spreads? Why not put the olive oil on? Because that's your favourite. That's my favourite thing is the olive oil. I like olive oil with um, quite crunchy salt, so rock salt. Yeah, that's nice, yeah. yeah. A good olive oil, is there's mm. nothing to beat it. And also, again, you get the feeling, you know, this has been going a long time. Yeah. And the, the Romans brought the olives to Spain, and some of those trees, if you're in Spain, some of those trees, they say, that's a thousand-year-old tree. I mm. don't know, maybe they're older than that. And it's still giving olives off. There's an incredible feeling that this is what this is what stuff would have tasted like in Roman times. This is the this is the stuff of life, you know. This is what European civilization, if you like that, has, has been built on. This is olive oil. Mm. It's the best for cooking. You can put it in your hair. <laughs> you can <laughs> wipe it on your. You know, it, it's 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 an it's an all-purpose, brilliant thing. Olive oil. Yeah. My cousin uh, makes his own olive oil, and he gave me a bottle of that, and it was incredibly peppery. I mean, really hot. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I, I love the, the different flavours of olive oil. I could quite happily do without all dairy products, but olive oil, you couldn't do without that. You can feel it sort of oiling your joints. You, it's, it's like car oil for humans. <laughs> so have you got... a particular favorite country for olive oil well i would have said spain because there's a place i've been in the in the middle of spain Almadenia, 
where they get all the local award-winning olive oils and mm-hmm. they give it to you for breakfast. They say, now, this oil is this one. This is award-winning for the area. This one's this one. And today I'm going to give you this oil. And it's done like almost like speciality wines. Do you speak Spanish? I'm learning it, yes. I think I read somewhere that you, you performed in Spain, did you? In Barcelona. I, I, um, it's a bit weird. The, um, the young ones are still playing there. The young ones <laughs> is huge in, in Catalonia, in the, in the northeast of Spain, in, in, in the, the state of Catalonia, Barcelona, Tarragona. And the guy who did the translation is an Englishman who's half... Catalan, speaking Catalan, and he works for TV3 there. And did the tran- he's a really good comedy writer. And so the, their version of The Young Ones in Catalan is particularly good. And it had particularly good dubbing artists. But as a result, it's huge out there. So when I go there, I got invited to do a travel programme all around Catalonia by TV3, Catalonian television. And so I got to know quite a few people. And I got to know him. And I, I got to know the voice as well. I had to do sort of presentations for this program. I got to know the voice of the guy who dubbed me. Because if I did my Neil voice, <laughs> nobody knows, nobody recognises, you know, in this country no. you'd say, oh, hello, you know, everybody knows that's <laughs> Neil. Nobody knows it because they, they hear, if I do it, I'll do it for you now. I go, oh, mal karma, mal karma un altre cop. That's how he talked. <laughs> he talks in this weird, and it, but it works brilliantly when you see it on the screen. It works really, really well. But so I can get a laugh doing imitations of the guy who dubbed me <laughs> in Barcelona. That's amazing. It's bizarre. But anyway, so I, I, I went there and they invited me to do a sort of evening with show. So I did that. Um, and then the guy, uh, Francis Humble, is the name of the guy who did the translation. He translated a play I wrote called On the Ceiling, and that's still on in Barcelona now. It's a, wow. it's a two-hander comedy play about the guys who did the plastering on the Sistine Chapel, and they get fired by Michelangelo. It's all based in reasonable historical fact. If it's got facts in it, I'll, I'll be okay. <laughs> yes. I like facts. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's about these two guys. They did exist, Lapo and Lotti. They did exist. They were employed by Michelangelo. They were fired by him. And in my version, they sneak back in to the Sistine Chapel to try and chip their bits off. Um, anyway, <laughs> it's still going in Catalonia. And in fact, it somehow works better in Catalan than it ever did in English because mm. they're more temperamental. They're more, they get into it more than English casts did. Although they were great, the English casts but that somehow it really found its home in Catalonia. Do you know, in France, you talk about people dubbing people's voices. Tom Selleck, of course, all his programmes are dubbed. But understandably, if you look at Tom Selleck's face, you would imagine that he was a big, gruff man. So, in fact, they, they have a, a Frenchman. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then Tom Selleck came over to be interviewed. And, of course, Tom Selleck's actually got a, quite a you know, funny little high voice. <laughs> Everybody, what, what the hell is wrong with him? Yeah, Clint Eastwood also had a, quite a high voice, didn't he? Make my day. <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny idea. If you just closed your eyes, he wouldn't be at all frightening. Make your own day. Yeah. Lovely. Right, okay, well, olive oil. I'm going to put a great big Greek urn 
Yeah, with some dipping bread. Yeah, bread and olive oil. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a jar of marmalade as well because I'm definitely going to try that. Yeah, you've got to try that. I will do. Yeah. So we've got one more thing, Nigel. We've got to put in um, something that you want to get rid of. It mm. again. It might be several things, but it could be summed up by Jonathan Price <laughs> because he's too good. <laughs> There's Jonathan Price, Hugh Laurie. He's another one. Yeah, you're basically saying good actors. Well, good actors who basically possibly are a little bit like me, uh, sort of my age. My, you like John Lithgow. Uh, now, yeah. I often get mistaken for John Lithgow, and he's brilliant. Um, mm. And Tim McInerney, there's another one. Yeah, loads of them, actually. A whole sack full of actors I'll put in here. <laughs> Although Tim's a bit... Because Tim, we used to get mistaken for brothers, and we could sort of do a double act together. No, he's going in. This, he's going in. So basically, you're talking about any actor that might get a role that when they're gone, you'll get. Yes, you got it. <laughs> all right, we're clearing the world of all rivals. <laughs> of all... Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, they, they're too good. Is the, the problem with them is they're either funny or they... They've got all these talents, and yeah. they are the right sort of age. The, the ones I've mentioned, all apart from Hugh Laurie, have sort of similar jowly faces to me. Mm. Um, so they really are just, they're just too good at it. They're too, <laughs> yeah, just basically, if, they, if, if what would happen, you see, if they were all put in the time capsule, leaving me here, Trouble is, I'm also in the time capsule now with my tree and my olive oil and my, you know, I might have just wished the very opposite. I might be stuck there with them. <laughs> They're sharing my olive oil. They come walking by, acting really well. You're sitting there having a lovely day reading a book and suddenly you hear this beautiful projection. And authenticity and truth. They're very good on that. So true. They're so good at it. The thing you're getting rid of in your life is um, is your enormous resentment? <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's thank you for putting. <laughs> is is yes, is the worst part of me. I think we can put it in a little compartment. Great. So you don't have to go and look at it anymore, and you can you can let it go. Just let it go. Resentment might be too strong a word because I don't. It's not that I resent them. It's. <laughs> I just want them gone. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's more envy than. It, it's uh, more sort of basic. Yeah. I think it's, I'm just envious of them all for doing it mm. so well. <laughs> well, I'm going to take your envy. <laughs> and you're going to put it in a box. They're going to put it in a box. I'm going to seal it up. I might, I might solder it around the top there. Yeah. I'm doing welding now. I'm going to actually weld the thing shut. I'm, I think that's a good idea. And then all of those poor actors, they don't have to go into the time capsule. They can just carry on, can't they? I mean, you won't care. I don't care. Well, I'm, what do I care? I'm sitting under a tree with olive oil looking at the river. Exactly. Oh, there we are. So I think um, we've sorted your life out. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you're welcome. And obviously, no actors were harmed in the making of this podcast. <laughs> Thanks very much. What fun. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Nigel Planer. If you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast – well, you can subscribe to all podcasts, but please subscribe to this one and you'll get all new episodes as they're released. You just click subscribe on Acast or wherever you prefer to get your podcasts. And if you get the chance to rate the show or leave a short review, we'd be very grateful. 
You can keep up to date with everything we're doing on My Time Capsule if you follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. You just search at MyTCPod or Fenton Stevens. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens. The music is by Pass the Peas Music. And in fact, you can hear the full track, without me babbling all over it, if you look for My Time Capsule theme tune on Spotify. This has been a cast-off production. So, until next time, I'm off to sit under a tree and contemplate the wonders of nature. <sighs> yeah, I'll just check the weather forecast. Um, oh, lightning. I'm sure it'll be safe. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.